How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Blind. I am your host, Chris Adams. If you're following along on iTunes or uh, Podbean, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review, comment, whatever you want to say on there. Just put something on there. We've got a heck of a lot of listens, and I could use a few more reviews on this sucker. If you are not following along with us on social media, jump on Facebook or Instagram, type in BTBN. Hit that like or follow button. There is a closed podcast group that's just BTB and podcast. Jump on there. You can give reviews. That's usually the best way to get in contact with me. My days are so busy, man. I get messages all day long from calls, from podcasts, from different guys that I'm going to interview. So the best way to get a hold of me is probably through the podcast group. Um, Yeah, so that way we can just talk about different ideas for shows and what you guys want to see. Um, If you need yourself a half-decent duck call, feel free to check out my Instagram page, Unstable Calls. I can uh, put together a nice paperweight for you for an event, something that you want to memorize. You can get a gift for somebody, whatever. Uh, Summertime is dwindling down. We finally had a nice cool streak today, which is nice because I had to haul a bunch of loads of brush to the freaking recycling center today and uh it was nice for it not to be 98 degrees outside i think it was like 86 it's even raining right now which is just crazy because the lawn is dead so it's a, a nice little bit of relief it makes it a little bit cooler out in the shop too i spent all morning out working on some calls uh, speaking of calls Today's episode, I have a mixture of both. He is a world champion competition caller. He's worked for one of the big name duck call manufacturers out there. Now he's uh, he's doing a little bit of his own call making. So uh, I'm pretty excited to see what's happening. I've had him on live videos before. Super, super nice guy. And uh, without any further ado, the great Mr. Phil Green. All right, buddy. How are you today, man? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, me and my wife just got back a little while ago from having lunch. It's our anniversary, so well, congrats. we had some fajitas, and I got a full belly going on. <laughs> I was going to say congratulations <laughs> to you, man. That uh, sounds a lot better than what I was doing this morning. Yeah, yeah it's been eight years. It seemed like time just flew by, though. Dude, that's the best. That uh, It really makes a huge difference when you're happy with it, right? Yeah, I was, yeah. Uh, you know, it changes when you first get together. You have that infatuation thing going on, you know, and then after you've been together a while, you start learning to live with each other, and I think you, your love grows stronger, you know? Oh, exactly. It comes down to, can you deal with the annoyances? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> That's the way it I is. think we've pretty much gotten used to each other. But. Oh, well, that's good, man. That, uh... That's fun. I came home from work last week, and uh, I don't know, like five or six, and uh, the girlfriend had texted me, and she's like, hey, I did a, a really awesome thing today, and I was like, what was that? And she was, showed me a picture. She had trimmed all the brush and trees and, you know, manicured up the whole lawn and stuff like that, and uh, I was like, well, that's awesome, really good, you know? What'd you I do wish I could get mine to do that. Well... I was like, uh, what'd you do with all the brush? <laughs> well, it's all in a big giant pile in the front yard. <laughs> and I was like, all right. Um, so this morning, it's my first day off, and she's like, I need I need a favor from you. <laughs> I was like, oh, what's what's the favor? Is it a 10-minute favor, or is it a, is it a favor favor? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I spent the first bit of the morning taking brush off, like, four or five trips out to the... Uh, the recycling facility but you know it was worth it the front yard looks great now and realistically it would have been me doing the whole process if it was anybody else so it's like yeah mine's been getting out of hand i've actually been out there with the weed eater this week you know my leg like it is i can't do a whole lot so i'll get out there and work for about 15 20 minutes and then i'll take a break and 
Yeah, I've got a little guy that comes by and cuts the grass for me every once in a while, but he don't like to weed eat very much, so I'm having a, a big job going all the way around the house, and I've got some other stuff in the backyard where it's growing up. Well, freaking luckily, man, it's been super dry here. We just caught our first glimpse of rain today, but uh, I don't think I've had to mow in two weeks, and I don't. I think I'll be good for another week because it's been so dry. But uh, yeah, the weeds always seem to grow no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like it's kind of slowed down growing a little bit the last week or so here, but yeah, I think they're calling for some rain for the next few days. I think uh, Wednesday and Thursday for sure. But are you guys not getting any today down there? No, not so far. What city are you in in uh, in Arkansas? In Wiener. Okay, okay. You're only like two and a half hours south of me. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're getting. A yeah, it's like bit. twenty twenty five minutes south of Jonesboro. Yeah, that's not too bad. I, I'm up in Springfield, Missouri, so it's not too far. I've been there a few times up to the Bass Pro Shops and passed through going up to Kansas City and all that. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird little small, big... It's like a big town, small city, so it's kind of a, a different atmosphere, but I like it. Yeah, it's kind of halfway. It's kind of big and kind of small at the same time, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we don't have any of the uh, like amenities of like professional sports or anything like that to really watch. But, it, uh, you know, you have more than just a Walmart. <laughs> yeah. So, what have you been doing, man, with uh, no duck calling going on? Just been fooling around in the shop a little bit. Um, really, I haven't been doing a whole lot. I'm just trying to stay off of my leg and, and let it heal up. Mm-hmm. I went and saw the doctor about a month ago, and he said it looks like it's healing slow, but it's still got a crack in the bone, so... Did you get in a, a car accident? Is that what it was? Yeah, about two years ago. Yeah. Uh, August 7th on uh, 2018, I got hit by a drunk driver. So, actually, I was leaving the Echo Call shop. I pulled out and I was about a block forward and uh, she come barreling behind me. Dang, man. That... And uh, they said that uh, she was, like, I don't know if she, she was having seizures or what was going on, but... Uh, they said she had taken a whole bunch of pills, and she was actually on her way to drug court running late and was, like, running, like, 90 miles an hour down the road. Good night. And were you yeah, just hit me, and uh, it spun my truck around. I was going about 45 miles an hour, and I flipped twice and ended up right side up in the ditch, uh, right in front of Echo Calls, well, just a little bit past it, and uh, smashed in every panel on the vehicle, and they had to cut me out with the jaws of life. I had uh, a broken femur, five broken ribs, and my head was busted wide open, bleeding like crazy. And uh, so I was out of commission for a while. Yeah, I remember seeing all those pictures over the last couple of years and hearing about it. And uh, that, yeah, it's just been a minute since I've even seen it. But I'm glad to hear you're doing better, man. That that's crazy. Well, I've had to have three surgeries on my leg, and I don't understand why the bone's not healing. I guess maybe because I'm older and that, that femur's a real big bone. Oh, yeah. And uh, it takes a lot of blood flow to, to get it healing right there. So it's just a slow process. Most people would have been healed up by now. And all my ribs have healed up fine and everything else is fine with me. It's just that leg. And I get around pretty good on it. It just seems like if I have to stay on it for longer than 20 minutes or so, I'll start having problems. Yeah. So. Yeah. Those freaking ribs are something else, too, man. You can't sneeze. You can't cough. Oh, yeah, it was rough. Yeah, it's, uh, they're freaking brutal. I was in the hospital bed, and they had one of those, like a bar going across with a, a chain hanging down. And I had to try to grab that chain to move myself around in the bed. And, uh, yeah, it was a rough deal. It was crazy, though. The ribs healed up pretty quick. I was back blowing the duck call. They let me set the chair and blow the contest, like, two months later. That's insane. So my, yeah, and I won, too. So that was <laughs> what was crazy about it. But, uh. My ribs healed up really quick. That's why I don't understand why the leg hasn't. But yeah, the, all in good time, I guess. Right. I was gonna say I'm not even close to a scientist or a doctor. I won't even pretend to know why, yeah. man. So, yeah. How did you uh, how'd you get into this duck calling thing? I remember we did a little live video a couple years ago about it. But uh, for the people who haven't watched that, tell me your your duck calling history, man. Well, it all started off just from going hunting. Uh, Remember, I was about 15. My grandfather and my uncle uh, took me out hunting. 
and I got hooked on it pretty quick. And my grandpa hadn't been in a long time, and my grandmother had passed away a year or two before that, so he got hooked on it also. And uh, there was another lake probably 15 minutes from our house that they drained it out and uh, it was dry for a couple of years and a whole bunch of willows and stuff like that grew up in it and they pumped it up full of water and he started hearing about a lot of ducks in there. So me and him worked together to build a blind in that lake. And with all that going on, my dad also got involved and he built a blind in that lake too. And uh, we did real good in there for a few years. But I had no idea what I was doing calling or anything like that. I just had a little cheap call, and I'd go out there and quack and feed call at them and stuff like that. But uh, <clears throat> as time went on, I uh, I got more and more into it. You know, I started, like, every year whenever Walmart would start putting their hunting stuff out, I'd be down there buying the duck hunting videos. And I ran across a couple of them uh, that guys were blowing custom calls and stuff like that. I never heard of anything like that back in those days. Uh, I was just blowing a cheap call, like whatever I could find. Uh, Duck Commander, or Haydale, Primo's, Winch, just whatever was cheap at the store I would get. And, see, uh, you're mentioning those two names. Before we jump too much further, you were are you originally from West or Eastern Texas or Louisiana? Is, is that something I remember correctly? Or are you from Arkansas? No, I'm South Central Louisiana. Okay. Down in yeah. New Iberia. I was gonna say you mentioned those names, man. It struck up that memory of that. Yeah, I was listening to you and Mister Easton talk the other day, and uh, y'all were talking about South of I ten. Well, that's where I am. <laughs> south of I ten, down there with the crawfish and the boudin and all that stuff. Yes, the real South. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, I'll let you get back to it. Sorry about that. But anyway, uh, just from watching those videos and stuff like that, I started seeing some guys blowing some fancier looking calls and they sounded really good. So I started looking them up on the internet and getting more into it and learning more about custom calls. Eventually I bought a few of them and I don't know. I was just obsessed with learning how to blow them. After I spent the money on them, I was like, I got to learn how to blow these things now. So, and I love hunting back then. That's all I could think about all the time. So all I, you know, I wanted to get good at those calls and, kill as many ducks as possible <laughs> so the goal was to get as good as you can to put more ducks in the spread was the idea yeah and uh eventually i heard about the world championships i never even knew there was anything like that before and uh we went to the gate on duck festival one time and i heard a duck calling contest over there and it was mostly guys blowing a bunch of uh double reeds and stuff like that just doing like meat calling and i liked it and I tried to start doing some of that stuff, but I didn't get too far into it before I heard about that World Championship stuff. And I ordered up a video for that. And when I started hearing these guys ringing on these calls and uh, the crazy feed calling they were doing, I was like, man, this is something else. I've got to learn how to do it. So I started spending a lot of time trying to figure that out. Eventually, I got in touch with, uh, with Rick Dunn, and he set me up with a contest call. And the rest was history. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's it's such an interesting thing with the the duck calling side of things, you know, because just like yourself, I think so many guys go out to the blind and they're doing, you know, they get a little bit better. They might hunt with a buddy who's a little bit better, but then you hear the guys that are out there, at, you know, like the World Meat Championship and then the Main Street guys, and you're just like, holy cow, they're like real high-level professionals in this thing man there you know there's a next level to this thing that i haven't even heard before and uh it's pretty wild yeah uh, and a lot of those guys didn't start off sounding like that trust me oh yeah it took many many hours of practice i used to practice for like six or eight hours every single day and uh i mean every time i had a chance i had a call up man i was blowing on it and eventually, I started becoming competitive after a couple of years of doing it. But, yeah, the whole goal was just to get better at killing ducks. And I don't know, it just kind of fell in my lap. And the first few contests that I called in, I did pretty good. Uh, I went over to Texas and called, and, and I think I got fourth in a regional. And uh, then I went over to Louisiana State and got second that year. So I was like, well, if I can get second, I think I can win this thing. So the very next year, I practiced even harder and 
we went to the state and I got it. And that was uh that was when you got to punch your ticket. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, uh yeah, man, I remember you telling me a little bit about that. You did pretty good that first year too, didn't you? Like Yeah. I got second runner up. Yeah, that's dude, that's so crazy. <laughs> when guys like that, you know, with kinda like Mingo did that, um in seventeen. Yeah, he got second place on his first year. Yeah, first year. right the year that you won. It was sixteen, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's it's so wild that guys can you know just jump in there, and it. I feel like it has to. But I believe he was kind of like me. I think he had probably did it for a few years before he finally got qualified, and when he got up there, he was ready. You know. Well, have you heard his his story that year? I think I listened to a podcast with him in it, but I, I'm not remembering for some reason. Okay. So he had been doing it for a couple of years. I can't remember exactly how many, but he had decided that year was his last year. If he didn't win, he had never won a contest, if, if I remember correctly. He hadn't won any contest. And he said, if he can't do it and punch his ticket this year, then he's given up on it. He said he was done with it. He was, uh, it was time to find, you know, start putting attention to something else. And then he went out and, uh, one, I think it was the Missouri or the regional. I think they were both held in Kansas City at the same time on the same day in the same place. So one of the two state contests, and that was the year that he had punched his ticket for the first time. But he was one contest away from, you know, quitting. And then he goes out that same year and finishes runner-up to you. Yeah, and he sounded exceptionally well. too. And that's how it happens, you know. You get on the verge of winning, and finally it comes down to just having the confidence to, to get it all out when you get up there. You know, I'm normally a real nervous person when I get up there, probably more nervous than anybody else, but once I start doing it and I get into the hang of it again, the confidence starts building. That's why I like, and there's a lot of guys that'll win the first contest they call in every year, and most of the time I'll come close to it, but maybe the nerves will get me a little bit and it'll take me two or three contests. But it seems like after I get enough stage time calling in two or three contests, I like to do it later in the year. That way it's building up for that world contest. And each one I call in, I get a little bit more confidence. And uh, that's where it lies at. Just knowing that you can do it and getting up there and, and doing the best you can. Yeah, getting those those reps in, too. I, um... God, I can't remember if it was Hunter Grounds I was talking to about it. Um, about getting the reps in, getting the stage time in. Because you'll see guys that are like, you know, Mingo, Seth Fields, um, Shanahan does a, used to do a little bit more. But uh, guys that go to every single contest all over yeah. the freaking United States. And I was uh, talking to him, And then you have, you know, I remember seeing you and Logan specifically at the time where you guys were entering maybe two or three a year. And I was like, you know, the preparation, because it just feels like there's other guys that are doing so many contests. I don't know if there's a benefit to doing too many, you know, or doing like three or four just to tune up and get your mind right and then be ready. I don't know. I think everyone's a little bit different. Um, I was focused in on that one contest, you know, the Main Street style. And I'm sure if I would have put a lot of effort into the, the meat calling, I may have been able to do well in it. I don't know. But for some reason, I just had that one focus on that. And that's why I didn't call in so many of them. I would just try to get qualified. And after I was qualified, I'd maybe look for an opener or two to call in. And after that, it was the world contest. And uh, I just didn't want to confuse myself with anything else. Well, yeah, I think that's a, a really good point, too, is, you know, you guys that get to the top level you know can call in so many different areas and be good because if you're good enough to get to a world champion level or you know you know top 10 in the world and one one different type of calling there's no doubt that you can get to the other ones you know because you see guys like you know shanahan who can do freaking everything um Corey's really good at doing everything seth freaking picks up everything and uh Heck, Robbie Iverson, he's done really good in Worlds, and of course he's a freaking beast on a goose call. Like, yeah. all the guys that do all the different genres and can be great at everything, it's just because 
they do those other things, but I have no doubt in my mind anybody who can get to a world championship level could do any genre they wanted to. And I really feel like being in more contests, whether it's the same style or not, just getting on that stage, no matter what you're doing, it's going to make you more comfortable. Just being in front of people more and getting those rounds out and having the pressure of being in a contest, no matter what kind it is, you know? But yeah, it's those, it's those reps, you know, just feeling comfortable. It really helps. Yeah, just feeling comfortable. It was funny, I was talking to Hunter about it, and... Uh, he was saying how guys. Okay, let's just start with yours. What round are you most nervous in? In the first round. In the first round, not the third. Yep. No. Man, I, see, I would always think it would be the third. In the third round, I feel like I'm playing catch up because I know I probably didn't do the first round quite as good as I should have. So in the third round, I'm just fired up, and uh, I go out and just try to just hammer it the best I can every time. It's always normally my best round. I got you. See, that's But everyone's a little bit different, you know. I mean, like I said, I always get so nervous in the first one. The second one, I'm, like, trying to make up. And then on the third one, I'm trying to make up for it. And I don't think if if I haven't done better in those, I would have never finished as well as I have. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got that final final round push that makes all the difference in the world and that's what I was asking him about and he said the first round as well and he's like no by the third round they've already heard me twice and want to hear me again I know I'm good on that end it's just about putting down the best routine at that point each time whenever they call your name back to say you're going to make it to the next round confidence builds again like all right, well I'm in here but I didn't get that last one quite as good so I got to get out there and I got to try just a little bit harder this time and you loosen up a little bit each time do you feel like that confidence is like one of the most important aspects of it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You got to know that you can do it. And it's not really about being cocky, but you kind of have to in a little bit of a way. You know what I mean? You have to know that I've got it in me. I've got, to, I can do this and I'm going to, and there's nothing going to stop me. You know, there's a lot of great callers here, but I'm not going to do any good at all if I let my own self psych myself out. Right, right, yeah, I so, agree. So main thing is just is just getting out there and doing it, though. That's why I was hoping they were going to have the D and W contest this past weekend because it's like thirty minutes from my house and I'm ready to get my feet wet. But, man, I don't know what they're going to do. Um, I, there was a conversation last night on one of the uh, the forums talking about you know what's world's going to do with all these contests canceling, and it's like you know. You've already, you've, right now they've got like seven people who've punched their ticket and theoretically they'll be like 25 if they have all the contests they say they're going to have yeah. which is just crazy I don't know how they're going to work it out yeah they're going to have to get, uh, get creative I've heard about man. them letting everybody that's been qualified last year maybe come back or something like that but it's not really right for the guys that had to call again and for the contest organizers that put the ones on you know it's not fair to which ones What's that? I'm sorry, which, you said it's not fair to who? It's not fair to the guys that went through the trouble to get qualified, and it's also not fair to the guys that, that did put contests on and run them. Oh, yeah, And yeah. had to come up with the money and all of that stuff. Yeah, it, it's, dude, it's a problem that is going to be really, really tough to figure out, and I don't think that there's any way that they can do it that's going to make everybody happy, for sure. So you, I'm sure uh, they'll figure something out, though. Oh, yeah. They'll definitely have to. If they want to... Uh, it's a big year. I'm sure they don't want to cancel it because, you know, they have that champion of champions this year, and they also have the senior world contest, which they only have every five years now, too. So there's been a lot of guys that's been waiting a long time, so I'm sure they're trying to do everything they can to get it going, you know. But. Well, and Arkansas is one of those states, man. I go to Arkansas probably twice a week for work, and they're one of those states that uh, they're not overly concerned with all of this corona stuff going yeah. on like you know we have to wear a mask for work. a lot of country folks over here yeah yeah well <laughs> and uh you know we have to wear a mask for work it's just our policy and i always err on the side of caution for you know i don't want to go in without mine on and somebody else you know hey your guy didn't wear his mask into work that kind of thing 
I've had people like, dude, you can take your mask off. And I'm like, ah, it's our policy. And they're like, no, I'm in the anti-mask movement of Arkansas. I'm like, all right, well, that's cool, man. It was just... Well, they made it mandatory over here if you go inside anywhere that you have to have it on. But then our local government here in Wiener, the city uh, council or whatever, said there's no way they can enforce it, so don't really worry about it too much. But then you go in the store, and the store manager said... Well, you need to have this mask on, so it's real confusing on whether to wear it or not. But yeah, that's kind of how I am around here in Missouri, man. I bring it with me, and uh, you know, it's like I'll have it ready if I have to have something. But I don't know. It's it's a weird, weird thing. Oh man! So you were uh, trying to mess with these calls and start up a business in the middle of this thing. How is it going? Well, I'm still working on them. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff to do. I have a bunch of calls that are turned already that need to be finished up, and uh, I've got some wood ones in there that need to... I like to do a lot of dipping, like I was saying, and uh, so they all need to be dipped and dried and all of that. And got some acrylic parts that need to be polished up, and I just got my jig in the other day, and it seems like it's doing pretty good. Yeah, I saw you I make had, a post on that. Was that your second jig that you've ever had made? Yeah. I actually started making calls, trying to make them anyway, back around 2003. And uh, I had, me and dad went in together on it and we bought some cheap equipment. I got a lathe that was probably like five or six foot long. And uh, it was for like making table legs and baseball bat. I mean, just for like long parts and stuff yeah, like that. Beat. And I was chucking it all the way down to like two or three inches. <laughs> and, uh, the way it was set up is like it didn't have Morris tapers or anything, so you really couldn't get any type of accessories for it. So everything that I had, I had to make by hand. Like uh, my mandrels and all that stuff, I got real hard wood and I turned them down as close as I could with a little bit of a taper so I could slide the barrels on there and turn them. And then, you know, I mean, everything was hard to do. And uh, eventually I upgraded my equipment over the years. There's still a few tools I need to get. Man, it gives you a found respect for your tooling when you have to make all the oh, other yeah. ones yourself. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. So, did you uh, were you competition calling before you got into... Uh... I kind of started it both around the same time. Right yeah. on. It, it, yeah, I started learning more about custom calls, and like so at that same time, I started trying to get better on them, and I started learning how to make my own at the same time. God. But it's been a slow process. I've never been dead serious on it. You know, I would go out and I'd make a few calls. I might work in my little shop for like a couple of days or a week or two or something like that. Then I might not go back in there for a couple of weeks. And uh, I've never been real big on selling them. I have sold some in the past, but I just felt like I wanted to make sure that the quality, especially like the way they blow and the way they sound is, is what I want before I start putting them out there. It's just the way I've always felt about it. And uh, so I probably could have been putting more out sooner, but I just decided to hold off till I got that sound right. Yeah. Were you uh, Were you still living in Louisiana when you started it? Yes, sir. Gotcha, gotcha. At mom and dad's house way <laughs> back, about 17 years ago. Holy cow, dude. You've been doing it a minute then. Yep. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have my first jig made until probably... 2009 so I was working on it for like 5 or 6 years maybe 7 years before I had a gig made the ones I was doing at home I had like a wooden block that I had cut out me and dad would cut these he would cut them for me really used to make cork notches and just like a straight like a flat tone board then I'd get to sanding on them I was going to say did you do it freehand or did he make like a wooden uh, jig for you it was like a wooden jig is what it was it was just a wooden flat jig and then it was hard to cut it on that because, you know, it's real easy to cut into the wooden jig if you're not careful. Yeah, so, you're only I mean, it's a very tough them. process to try to get it right. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine, man. I've only ever used metal jigs, and, you know, I complain on this thing enough that that's a headache, but I can't imagine starting with a wooden jig and uh, trying to keep that thing parallel. Well, I just think trying to get the deck height right on, on something like that, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's all guessing, you know, and that's how they did it for the <laughs> longest time. So, like, there was a lot of times what I would do is, like, make the cart notch even smaller 
And then, you know, if I had to bring it down to, to lower the deck or whatever, I would do the standing there and then come back and work on the cork notch board. I mean, it, each call would take like a day or two to work on. I mean, just, and a lot of them would end up getting messed up before it was all over with, too, so. <laughs> well, exactly, man. I think that aspect nowadays for call makers with metal jigs and stuff, you can just buy one for like 50, 60 bucks, you know, and it's there in two days. I think that process has made it so much easier for guys. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, you can get the freaking public jigs for $100. And, you know, if if you're just looking to get into it for, you know, just a little bit, not doing much, just kind of a hobby, you can make a duck call that quacks and, you know, does some basic stuff. And within a couple of weeks of figuring everything out, and I think it's made it too easy. Guys have to go back. I remember when I went from public jig after i did six months on a public jig and then was just never happy with it and yeah. i was like i have to break down and get this flat jig man like i have to start over and figure this thing out i learned more in three months of flat jigging than i had learned in six months like i'd learned more in probably two weeks of flat jigging and then i had learned in you know six months of public jigging and you start it, learning how to get that hold right on there huh? yeah you it it makes it so much harder and you really appreciate that knowledge once you get it it's the process mm-hmm. did you start- yeah the only ones that i've heard of i actually have one of wade's public jigs that i got quite a while back but uh i haven't used it a whole lot or anything and uh but i don't know much about the other ones like the pintails or any of those but yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, they're fine. They'll, you can kill ducks with a public jig call for sure. It's uh, just that differential between, you know, really putting, number one, putting your own spin into it. Because to me, going straight off of a public jig is no different than buying an echo for, or an insert from Rick, you know, <laughs> and yeah. uh, doing that. You're not really... Well, I mean, it kind of is in a way, though, if you think about it, because you still have to cut it out right and you still have to tune it up. So, I mean, if it comes out good, you did, you did pretty good, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a level. It's kind of like uh, the difference between calling during a hunting situation and hearing somebody on the stage calling. You know, it's the levels yeah. that you get to on it. Yeah, I got, like I said, I got that one from Wade, and I cut a few out on it, and it was the first one that he had, I think, the PJ-1 or something like that, so it was real short. So what I'd have to do is cut it a certain way, and then I'd have to move the call around in the jig and then finish cutting it another way or something like that. It wasn't long enough. So, I don't know. I just kept going back to the one that I'd already made off of my other jig, and I just liked it so much better. And I said, you know what? I don't want to go off of anything like that. I'm going to go off of what I made. And I was just real happy with it. But like I said, I made that call probably five or six years ago, and I've been holding on to it. And every time I make another one, I compare it to this one, and I'm like, man, I just can't make one better than it. So, <laughs> finally, I send it off, and I'm I'm pretty happy with it. I mean, I'm sure I still have a long way to go, you know. But, but yeah, you but you have a really good foundation of knowledge, you know. It's not like somebody who just picked up a call a year ago. <laughs> it, I think yeah. it helps out being able to really proficiently run a call to the max. I learned a lot from Rick too, working over at the shop. I was gonna say, how did uh, that? Uh, how did that happen, man? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, uh, I had talked to him about going to work for him, just kind of teasing a few times. And uh, one day he finally told me, like, if you ever figure out a way to get up here, come on. And uh, so I took him up on it. And I actually had another friend up here that let me come and stay with him. And uh, Adam Lyerly, he let me come up and uh, hunt with him. And I helped helped guide a little bit and uh, stayed with them for a while. And uh, I would go back and forth to Rick's shop. After hunting season was over with, I jumped in the car with Jonathan. Every day we would go back and forth to BB. Like, it was two hours for him and it was an hour and a half for me. And uh, he showed me a lot about setting up calls in the jig and cutting them out and stuff like that. So I got a lot of experience cutting them out on their, on their stuff too. So Yeah, that's a, uh, a really good internship right there. <laughs> yeah, it helped out a lot. Were you, uh, how long had you But there's been... still a lot of stuff that you have to learn on your own, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's... I mean, it was many, many years before he got set up the way that he is. Yeah, you have to learn through trial and fire, and that's just kind of that, that respect thing in the call-making game, man, is, uh, you know, if you look at a lot of these small shop guys, they're, everybody's super respectful as long as everybody, as long as you're doing it the right way, 
you know, not you specifically, but anybody who wants to get into making calls, as long as they're doing it the right way and putting that time in. And if you have a giant box of crap that's scrap now, you know, you get the respect of the guys who are making calls versus, you know, somebody who comes in and, you know, is looking for the easy answers with everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I wish there was an easy way around it, but there's not. <laughs> it's just the, the legwork, right? One thing that does help, though, is if you have a little bit of extra money. You know, if you've got a pretty good job and you can actually spend a little bit more and you're not worried about wasting parts and stuff like that, that really helps. Yeah. When you're on a budget, it kind of slows things down a little bit. Yes, sir. I fully agree with that. I've spent my whole time doing it on a budget. And uh, it definitely takes everything just that little bit longer and... You know, you order a piece of material to do a call for a guy, and it catches on you. You you know, catch a crack yeah. or something, and you're just like, oh, my goodness. And uh, there goes all the profit out of that one. Yep. So how long had you... Or like uh, if somebody gives you a blank and wants you to do it, you know what I mean? Good night, you know? You got to replace that if you mess it up. Yeah, that That's is... That's a lot uh, of pressure. Do you have specific vendors that you have guys send you blanks, blanks from? That might no, be a, I mean, just, just guys asking, you know, uh, I have this, this blank over here, this piece of acrylic or this piece of wood, would you be willing to kind of call off of it? And, That's one of the things that you might look into, I've done over the years, is uh, try to send people to guys that I know put out good blanks and stand behind their work and stuff like that, because I've had some that people have no idea where they got it from, or it's been through trades and stuff, and it's like... You know, if you go through a, a vendor that you've used before, like, if people hit me up and they're like, hey, I want a call made out of this. And I'm like, well, I don't have any of that right now. But if you hit this said person up or this guy up, you know, have him, you go for it, grab it, and have him just send it directly to me, save the shipping. And I know if something's bad with the blank, he's just going to replace it for you. Like, yeah. That type of thing. It's made a big difference in... uh you know, That's that, good to know. Yeah, that scrap cost, man, because that stuff can add up really quick. Well, I've seen some of your calls. You've got some beautiful work, man. I really, really appreciate it, man. If I can just get it. How to long have you been doing it? Uh, since early 2015, so just five years. But you've been you spent a lot of time with it, though. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. I definitely not as much as I would like to, but uh the right amount to keep it enjoyable for sure man yeah. it, there were uh times in life that it became more uh it helped pay the bills more than i liked and that's when it got to not be as much fun for me personally and then there were uh times where it didn't pay the bills at all and it just bought hunting gear and <laughs> you know fun stuff and that's where it really became enjoyable but, uh, you know, it's just everybody has their own situation and path to take. Yeah, uh, I was getting in it pretty heavy, and I just started working at Rick's, and I was ate up with it for a while, and then I met my wife, and that, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wouldn't change anything about it, but, you know, I was a lot more worried about her than I was those calls for uh, quite a while, so. <laughs> that. You know, that's a good thing, though. That that happens to us all. The family can definitely eat into some of that free time. I don't hunt nearly as much as I used to. I can tell you that much. Yeah, that's what's most important anyway, family. Exactly, exactly, man. So how long were you working, or were you uh, you um, blowing for Echo before you moved up to the shop? I started blowing in uh, 2003, and... I started working at the shop at the end of 2010. And, uh, like, I left my house. I stayed there for Christmas in Louisiana. And the very next day I left, it came up in 2010. Dang, dude, that's crazy. And, uh, right in the middle of hunting season. And, uh, like I said, I did a bunch of hunting with Adam. And I hunted with Brad Allen and uh, Jimmy Griffith and uh, Ward McGee. A bunch of us all got together and hunted quite a bit. And, uh had some real good times and I started going to work for Rick a few days a week then and he understood that I wasn't getting there because of hunting season because he spends most of his time out hunting that time of year too but uh, <laughs> when season was over with like I said started going just about every day and uh, 
me and Jonathan rode in that car for hours and hours, man. I spent three hours riding in the car with him every day. And, uh, and we became pretty good friends over the years doing that. And eventually, uh, when they moved up there, and maybe right before then, uh, it got to where it was too much for me to keep going back and forth. So I set up something with Rick where uh, I could go over there and work a few days a week, and then I would take parts home, and I would work from home on some of the parts, make money that way. But, uh, yeah, it was a long deal, and uh, I wouldn't trade any of it, though. Yeah, bunch of great guys over there. It's a really crazy learning experience with, and just uh, you know building that friendship, working in such a small, it, not a such a small, but you know a small environment, a close group of guys. Because what when I was up there, I think he had eight or nine people total. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know how many he has now. I think he had like up to eleven or twelve at one time. Dang. It was wild. It was uh the first time I'd seen you know duck calls being made at that level on cncs and the whole setup with different rooms it was a really cool experience man yeah yeah he's added another machine in there now so he's got one that he's doing the wood in and one he's doing the acrylic so dang they're they're cutting them out yeah yeah so the accident you know kind of slow down working for him yeah uh i don't know i guess i've just been waiting to heal up i could probably put calls together or tune them or something like that but I don't know it's been more of a hindrance I want to before I go back to work I want to make sure that I can work right like, right you know you want to be able to earn your money yeah well so you yeah it's been a real hard thing to go through I mean that I hurt real bad for a long time after that wreck yeah I remember, and, uh, I remember seeing that stuff man that's freaking terrible what ended up happening to her did she go to prison you know, I never heard anything else. Uh, they charged her with DUI, and uh, I believe she already had a, a long record before that, too. Dang. But I never heard what happened. Yeah, that's usually the way it goes. I kind of figured she was back out doing it again, but there's no telling. Oh, yeah, she probably got released due to <laughs> corona. No telling. <laughs> so... You you go and you finish second runner up that first year you punch your ticket, and that was what two thousand four. Yeah, that was two thousand four. And then you won that sucker in two thousand sixteen. What was that chase like, being so close those few times? Because you placed in the top four or five quite a few times, didn't you? Yeah, uh, I've got second runner up three times. I've got first runner up twice. And uh, threw out the top five multiple times in each position. And every year standing up there in the top five. Uh, but I'll tell you what, it was all worth it when it finally happened. You know, that's a tough contest to win, man. You got the best callers from everywhere, and there's a lot of people in it. Uh, the numbers have to be just right. You have to be just right every round. I mean, it's just, it's hard, hard, hard to win. And to stay consistent in there every year is pretty tough, too. You really have to push yourself. But it seems like with me, over the last few years, I've learned uh, how to practice a little bit better than I used to. I used to spend hours and hours and hours practicing all the time. A lot of times I'd wear myself out, and I would start playing mind games with myself, you know, whether I was doing it right or not, or, or could I be better at this or better at that, and Finally, I just started finding out where my strengths were and just focused on those. And whenever I practice, just try to not do as many routines, but try to do all of them as good as I can and make sure the call's right and tuned right, you know? Yeah, that's something you just have to... Uh, it's kind of like that trial trial and error type situation because um, maybe it's Hayden Richard I was talking to about that over-practicing type thing where it can become detrimental. And it sounds yeah. like that's what you're talking about right there. And it kind of did for me for a while. You know, around 2009, 10, 11, I was getting to where I was practicing way too much before the contest. And just getting burned out before the contest ever happened. And finally I said, you know what? I'm not even going to worry about this stuff. And a crazy thing happened. Uh, I went to a contest that I wasn't even planning on blowing in. 
and hadn't hardly practiced at all and won that thing. And I said, you know what? I've been doing this all wrong. But, you know, it takes a lot of a lot of repetitions over the years to build that muscle memory. But once you get to where you have it, it comes back real quick, like they say, riding a bicycle, you know. And uh, whenever it's time for a contest, I normally don't practice more than a couple of days. Well, that's what I was going to say. What's the, uh, like, what's the mindset? Do you run a couple routines a day during the week beforehand, or is it... Uh... You know, you have a very specific way of going about it? Yeah, uh, normally like whenever it's two weeks before or so, I may pick it up and blow it just a very little bit to make sure that I feel like my read and stuff is pretty good. And then whenever it gets, probably like nine or ten days before, I'll put the thing down and then I'll pick it up the week of. And just each day I'll practice till I feel like I'm not going to wear myself out. You know, I try to build just a little bit of error each day, but whenever it starts getting to the part where I get tired, I put it down and I won't touch it again until the next day. And uh, I don't know, it's just a feel thing. <laughs> a feel Some thing? Some of them feel like you need thing. to practice a little bit more, and other ones you might pick it up and blow good and be like, you know what, I don't even need to practice, you know? Right. So... Do you, uh, would it be something like you work on different parts of your routine when you practice, or you go out there and you practice running just dry runs of your routine? Well, when I first start, I just do parts of it. You know, I may practice, uh, a couple of short hails and stuff like that. I don't try to just immediately build as much wind as I can right away. I try to do it over time. You know, from each day trying to gain just a little bit more. And, uh... But I'll start off with small stuff, just doing short hills, and then I'll get into doing my ducks and my feet and stuff like that and getting all that stuff ironed out. Whenever it gets two or three days before, then I start running nothing but routines and uh, and, and running the clock. Because, you know, when you don't practice all the time and you pick it up, your timing might be just a little bit off. So you got to make sure you're not going to go past that buzzer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then you've wasted a whole lot of time. <laughs> But one thing, and like I said with me, the confidence thing is, if I practice too much, say if I start two or three weeks before and I start practicing hard every day, well, you can start playing head games with yourself if you're not careful. And uh, that's one thing that I was doing. So I feel like when I pick it up, normally when I haven't blown in a while and I pick it up, it seems like it it feels pretty good to me. And... uh, Maybe not the first day. The first day might feel all right, but normally by the second day when I pick it up, I start feeling good about it. And I try to keep that confidence getting stronger each day. And, you know, uh, my good friend Rob Watts, he helped me out a whole bunch years ago when I first got started. He worked at Echo back then. I used to call him up probably three or four days a week blowing routines over the phone. And he told me, he said, you know, there is a peak. I said, what's the peak? He said, well, you know, once you've been practicing too much every day, you build yourself up to a point where you actually start going downhill rather than getting better. So you got to find where that peak is and try to peak right for the contest. And uh, so that's what I've been working on all these years, trying to figure out where that peak was. When did you come up with this crazy bent-over style that you got going on, man? Because I've seen more pictures <laughs> of the top of your head than I've ever seen with any other caller. I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> I've always slunched over a little bit. Whenever I first started, I kind of hunched over just a little bit. And as I've gotten older and fatter, it seems like I may have just a little bit less wind than I used to. And for some reason, when I bend over more like that, I just get more control over it. I don't know why. But uh, <clears throat> I was blown in a contest a few years ago, probably 2014 or so and standing straight up and blowing and whenever I would blow I could hear the call wavering just a little bit and I was like what's going on here so I kept on trying to figure out what it was and one day I finally bent over and did it and that note come out just as straight and pretty and I said you know what I'm just going to try it like this so the next contest I went and called and I did it and I stayed like that the whole time and I blew pretty good so I was like well maybe this is what I need to do and I just stuck with it yeah, it's I don't know that I recommend that for everybody. You know, you just got to find what works for you. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's always one of my favorite things to see going on there. Because, you know, 
from a distance, if you're watching a competition, say you're walking across the parking lot and you look over at the tent, you know, some guys are like, who is that blowing? You know, what's going on right now? You can always tell when Phil's up there blowing <laughs> because it's got that. Yeah, and I'm already going. short as it is, so whenever I bend over like that, you can't even really see me at all. Oh, yeah, especially And I've uh, uh, noticed on, like, the video recorders and stuff, if you go back and watch the contest, if they were recording from the crowd, you can barely hear me, too, because all the sounds stand back there behind that little stage. It's actually you can just barely, barely hear it. Whereas other guys sound like they're just blasting that microphone. I was gonna and, say uh, it almost might be a good thing. You know how you know some goose calling competitions. You'll see them turn around and blow straight towards the curtain. You know it might even be a make it sound a little more powerful with it. You know reverbing off of what the, whatever's in front of you and bouncing straight back to the curtain. But honestly, on that wall stage you have concrete and then you have that little. Uh, blind that they make out of the that real grass mm-hmm. and I've always been worried that that grass might absorb some of the sound but I can hear it reflecting off of the concrete whenever I'm blowing down on it like that I can hear it bouncing off of it and I'm thinking that sound's staying right in there and maybe going back for the judges but no matter what it's doing that's the best way I can call I mean like I said if I try to stand straight up and do it I don't do it as well so even if I'm losing just a touch volume like that that's just the way I have to do it. What was it like in 2016? You're standing up there again, waiting for your name, waiting for you know all the different guys getting their names called. What was it like when you heard them finally call you out? Man. It's hard to say. Uh, there's been so many times that I've been right there. You know, and the nerves start building up. Is it finally going to be? And when it got down to the last two, I knew Domingo had blown good, and I knew that uh, he had been blowing good that year for sure. And I felt like I had blown good too, so I didn't know who it was. And uh, when they finally called it out, it was like a, a big old pressure was lifted off. And uh, man, all I can do is scream whenever I heard it. That was all I could do. I just belted out, woo, loud as I could. <laughs> I remember I went over to Max Perry Wings a couple of weeks later because I had won a shotgun with it. Mm. He said, oh, look, it's Ric Flair. Just whenever I was getting the gun, the, the guy back there said, look, it's Ric Flair. <laughs> That's too funny, man. Yeah, I just belted out. and I'm not one that normally cries in front of a whole lot of people, but I had tears running down my face, too. And... I've been chasing, trying to do it again ever since. I don't know if it'll ever happen again, but I'm getting older. I'm going to keep on trying until I can't do it anymore, but I don't know how long that's going to be. Yeah, hopefully, man, get that, that leg healed up because I don't know of a of a chair that puts you in that front lean position. <laughs> <laughs> you know, man? Yeah, and that's something that's been tough, too, since the wreck. Because I do hunch over like that whenever I'm doing it, it puts a lot of pressure on that leg. So that leg will actually get to shaking pretty bad and and hurting whenever I'm doing it. So I'm having to fight that off and try to concentrate on the routine at the same time. And uh, it's not easy. Yeah, because the last thing you need is something else in your mind to be having to think about. Yeah, you need to be 100% focused. I mean, I just try to forget about it, but about halfway through that routine, you start feeling it. And... I just try to fight it off the best I can. Do you have a single routine from your all of your years that sticks out to you more than any other ones? Maybe for maybe it was your first one. Maybe it was the one you know the clincher in the third year. Maybe it was one that you stuck a, a read in or something like that. Do you have anything that sticks out more that you remember? It's hard to say. I've changed it up quite a bit throughout the years. But I've kept a lot of things the same, too. Uh, there was one time that I was up in Illinois, and it was before they moved to Peoria. Uh, I guess, is it, not, what was the name of that place? Was it Moline? And uh, it was my birthday, and I wanted to win so bad. I went up there, and I was blowing that thing, and I was going along as good as I could remember. I mean, I was just hammering everything, and all of a sudden I was 
I was going into that build-up for the comeback, and I locked that baby up. And I just stopped right there and walked off. And I've never done that before. I mean, that was the first time that I ever did that. And sometimes you think, like, well, if I mess up, I'm just going to keep on doing it or whatever. But whenever it happens, it just kind of stopped me right in my tracks. And I walked off with my head down. And uh, after that round was over, when I went out in the crowd, and Butch was out there. And he got all over me. He said, you know what? You were sounding good. He said, I bet you would have took that round if you didn't mess up. He said, but I'm going to tell you right now, I better not ever see you walk off that stage again if you mess up. He said, because there's kids out here watching. And they don't think every time they make a mistake that they need to walk off. And I said, yes, sir. And I've tried my best. Now, there was another time, the year after I won the world, I went back and I locked it up again that year. Yeah, that was and, uh, the second round. I remember and that, that one vividly. stopped me cold turkey too. Yeah, that one was, dude. That, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if you ever even looked at what it was. It locked it up so bad I couldn't even blow it anymore. I mean, it just all I could do is just stop and walk off, and I felt horrible about it. But yeah, it, it was all I could do. It's tough, man. Once you get to that level, and you know, I had watched the last three contests you had done before that and you know just how locked in everything was i remember it vividly because you know that was like when i was trying to broadcast all of them and you know trying to live stream contests for people and uh yeah you i think you were at 229 at that point because that was in the second round and i think mingo was at 228 seth was at 228 logan was at 227 it's something, and I was like, all right, well, here comes Phil. And then I was like, holy cow, this contest just got a lot more interesting, you know. And it was yeah. nothing against anybody else. It was just, holy cow, man, you know, this thing got. Yeah, the first round was actually pretty good. I don't remember what I scored, but I was somewhere close to the top in that first round. Yeah, there were like seven or eight of you guys that were all within a point. And I was hammering on that second round, too. The first half before I made that mistake was as good as I could go. And. I don't know what happened. I, I had been, uh, I had a hose in my mouth not long before that. And after the whole contest was over, I never looked at my call again after it happened. But when it was over with, uh, the very next day I pulled my call out and I tried to blow it and it wouldn't blow. And I looked at the call and underneath the read, there was a big old yellow drop, the same color as that hose that I had in my mouth right before I went on stage. I guess I had a little sore throat that day or something that, I thought I had washed my mouth. Normally, if I do something like that, I'll kind of slosh with some water out of a water bottle or something like that, you know, and try to clean everything out because, man, on those contest calls, they're so precise. If you have one little bitty thing get underneath there, it can completely mess it up. So you see guys with dollar bills underneath the reeds trying to get the moisture out and people steadily blowing underneath them and flicking them and trying to keep them as clean as possible. But it just wasn't my day. And uh, I guess it, you know, God has a plan for everybody, and that wasn't his plan for me that day, I promise you. Well, I have no doubt in my mind you'll be back out there and killing it again as soon as they allow us to start doing these things again, man. Yeah, I hope it's pretty soon. I was actually fired up this year, and you kind of put a damper on it. Yeah, it's it's been a weird one for sure, man. What do you think about these online contests? They're pretty good, and I believe they're getting a lot of guys involved in it. Uh, that wouldn't that wouldn't have normally gotten in there and I think with them doing well on there it's going to give them confidence to actually get into the real ones I agree but you know talking about that having contests and having interest I remember one thing that when I got into it that has changed from back then until now and what used to happen is that a lot of these contests especially if you had to travel they always had some kind of a party or a gathering or you know, a, a, a meal or something where everybody got together after the contest. Like over in Texas, I used to go to Mike Barnett's contest, which is a Gulf Coast Regional, and we would go up there, and after the contest was over with, they had all the ball crawfish and beer you could eat and drink after it was over with. Then up in Kansas City, they used to always have barbecue, and there was always something that went along with a lot of the contests, and I just don't know that I'm seeing the camaraderie that I used to see with it, and I believe if that came back, it would help a whole lot. Yeah. Because, you know, you can only really have one winner, and the rest of the guys are all, you know, 
they want to do good, but when they don't, you know, they have to move on to the next one. But whenever you can get together with your friends afterwards and talk about it and have fun and hang out for a while, it kind of helps smooth the whole thing over with and get you ready for the next one. So. I agree, man. I've talked to other competition callers on this thing, and I uh, I think I was talking to Steiny, and uh, we were talking about it. And I said, you know what's really missing, man, is the guy who's been doing it less than five years. You know, those those new guys that are, are sticking around and hanging out and uh, still going out there and trying to get better. Because it seems like right now everything is super top-heavy. You know, you, the guys that show up are the guys that always show up. And they're, we're missing those new guys that are coming through. And uh, that's what they really need. And I think those online competitions are really helping with that. But those, you know, just those those rookies and guys that have been doing it a couple of years to keep growing and keep getting better, that next generation. See, so, you know, in five years you have a whole new crop of, you know, guys that are doing it and going to everyone. Yeah, and it just, just like doesn't seem like everybody's hanging out very much after they're over with. Yeah. You know, and that's something that makes people feel more comfortable. <clears throat> about, you know, learning from other people, excuse me, learning from other people and just getting to know everybody and and making you want to come back like, okay, I'm going to try to win because that's what we all want to do when we go. We're all competitive. But when you don't, you know you're going to have a good time anyway and get to see all your friends. And it just seems like a lot of that's going away over the last few years. So I believe bringing that back would make a big difference. I hope so, man. I, I hope uh, I hope people after this thing goes away and people start getting uh, that itch for competitions and stuff like that and hangouts and meetups and you know I uh, yeah I we all take it for granted you know and yeah uh, well, once it's not there anymore then you're like okay now what do we do you know so. it's it's crazy man these uh, these little phone calls and Skype sessions and stuff like that it helps. But uh, guys, definitely, dude, I miss going and hanging out with all my buddies. Like, it's going to be weird when duck season rolls around, and it'll be the first time I get to go hang out with all the buddies at once, you know, because it just hasn't been like that all summer. Yep. What's next? I agree. What's next with your calls, brother? Just going to keep trying to get better with them. Uh, I'm working on a few different things. Like I said, I need a couple more tools uh, to really get it going, but... uh, I've got a CNC line that I'm doing, but it's kind of CNC slash custom because, like I said, I, I hand ream all the calls and then I cut them all on the jig and I spend a lot of time with each one of them. They're not just like cut on a mill and completely like done on the CNC where all the, the boards, they're all hand done uh, as much as I can. And then, you know, working on hand turning a bunch of them also. Uh, and just getting everything ironed out where I can get like a little bit of a process going to knocking them out getting them ready you know yeah absolutely brother that's very cool i'm glad to see you getting into it and uh well obviously not getting into it you've been getting into it for a long time but getting back into it on a more regular basis it's uh it's always cool to have another really good call maker come out so yeah the one thing i like about the cnc stuff especially the inserts more than anything is that they're so consistent so when you cut them out you're getting a good base to start with. You know, the drill holes are all done right, and the and the size of the, the tenon is, is just right every time. So that helps with the consistency on that. And uh, whenever you're turning them, you got to be real careful to make sure that you try to turn them exactly the right size. And when you're drilling them, make sure you drill them just right too. So. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, my least favorite part of uh, call making is the tenon making. That is it's yeah. always a huge pain in the butt. It's got to be accurate. Yeah, it's the slowest part of the process, man. And then, like, uh, I don't know, like with the, the CA stuff that, that y'all do, a lot of guys do, uh, are y'all putting that on the tenon also? Because i got to take that into account, too. Like, whenever I dip it in urethane or anything like that, that's going to change the diameter of it just a little bit also. Some guys CA their tenons all the way out. I've never been a big fan of doing the whole tenon. What I'll do is I'll... Uh, I'll do my oil first, and then I'll hit that on the tenon as well, and then I'll wait for everything to dry on that, and then I'll CA the uh, the exposed part of the call, 
So that way you have some protection on the insert, you know, on the yeah. part of the insert tone board, but uh, you're not having to CA the whole thing because that's one of those parts that's going to wear more than others, you know, just pulling your call apart, putting yeah, it Yeah, it's going to knock it off anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're just making yourself having a whole lot of chipped mess to mess with on that, so I don't ever do it. But, yeah, man, that cha- definitely changes the diameter once you start adding coats and finishes. Yep, it's just little bitty small things like that to figure out, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's the processes and the things that every call maker has to figure out, and it's like you, somebody can tell you about it online and be like, "Hey, make sure you do this, make sure you do that." But it's one of those things you don't really learn it or why they're telling you to do it that way until you do it, and you're like, "Oh, this is why," <laughs> you know, yep. one of those learning things. One little bitty small thing can change everything. Uh-huh. Yeah, man. It's just trying to be as consistent as you can. Absolutely, man. Well, and, uh, go ahead, bud. Oh, you can go ahead. I don't know what I was going to say anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to thank you for coming on here, man. I, uh, You were worried about what you were going to talk about for an hour, and it's we ran up on it. So <laughs> it goes yeah. by pretty quick, brother. Well, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, and, uh, man. I can talk about this stuff all day long. <laughs> it, it's fun when it's something that's a passion. It makes it really easy to talk about. I'm just ready to get back to the kiln. Dude, I, I'm ready for some <laughs> cold weather. Forget about all that other stuff and get out there and start, you know, rocking a few heads back. That's all that matters at the end of the day, man. That uh, <laughs> That's the best part of the whole thing. Like, the, the heat in the summertime, sitting out in the shop, collecting all that sawdust on your body... When it starts getting cold, you're like, all right, this is worth it. Well, you know, and I'm a Cajun boy, so I like that gumbo, too. <laughs> yes, you sir. Know, during the wintertime, you can't hardly beat a good duck gumbo after you come in from hunting all morning long. <laughs> that's just as good a part of it to me as anything else. Yeah, well, that's the thing about you Cajun guys, man. Cook the crap out of stuff. Well, the only thing is, is trying to find the right stuff up here in Arkansas to do it with. Yeah, they, down, uh, down there we got all those good uh, butcher shops and stuff where they got the good Cajun sausage already pre-made and ready to go and you get used to having all that to your access and when you get up there I found a few places but it was hard So I tell you man that is one of the things that I miss about living south the most is the food yeah definitely <laughs> oh, I'll make a pig out of myself whenever I go home to visit the family down there yeah <laughs> Right? That's the best time, man. And get that good food. Yep. yep. <laughs> All right, brother. If people want to reach out and grab a call, when are you going to start selling them? Uh, hopefully in the next month or so. Right on. Well, where can I've they got get a them? few things i got to get. I'm working on some packaging stuff, you know, bags and boxes and all of that. And like I said, I need one or two more tools to, to get everything lined out. Uh, but I've got a lot of stuff ready, too. So just a few more things to get it all lined up and should be ready. Good deal. Well, if they want to grab one for me, where do they get a hold of you at so you don't have everybody blowing up your personal messenger? Well, I have a, a Main Greens uh, Facebook page. They can message me on there. or I don't know if I have my phone number on there or not. Uh, I may end up putting it on there where they can message me or even call me if they need to. That's good. And it's Mean Green Calls, not Mean Green Custom Calls, right? Yeah, Mean Green Calls. Good deal. So that way everybody on here knows exactly where to find it. Yes, sir. All right, buddy. Well, I'll let you get out here and uh, enjoy the rest of the day. I'm going to go spend some family time, maybe tune a call or two, and, uh, yeah, stay out of the heat as much as possible. Sounds good. Been good talking to you. All right, buddy. Uh, I hope you take care, man. All right, bye-bye. All right, right, guys, world champion Phil Green started making uh, Mean Green calls. Check him out, see what's going on. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Hopefully we get back to duck season and competition calling and call-making gatherings and all that stuff soon. If you enjoyed it, make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave us a review, share, like, do all that nonsense. Yeah, have a good one.